It's Something for Nothing, the Rush Fancast. Jerry and Steve with you, as always. Jerry, what's going on? Oh, not much, Steve. What's going on with you? I see you twirling your pen like Neil twirled his stick. Can you throw it in the air and catch it like Neil did? Well, I've never been able to do the, the drummer's twirl between the two fingers. It's not really twirling. It's more like just, I don't know, making a figure eight. Well, it seems like you're doing it well to me. Oh, thank you. I practice all the time. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, at The Rush Cast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro. Guess who did that today, Jer? Um, Lex. Lex. It's a surprise. Lex did the bass intro and outro masterfully. Yep. As he always does. And Jer, I hope you have an email for me because I haven't heard one in quite a while. You haven't? A week. <laughs> it's been a week. Yeah. <laughs> I do, uh, of course. It's from Wayne. He's from Lancashire. Is that how you pronounce that? Lancashire? I have no idea. UK? Oh, boy. Okay. He says, hello from Lancashire in the UK. I've been following your wonderful podcast for over a year, and it's fantastic. Wow, a year. That's hard to believe that we've been doing this for over a year. Yeah, I know. It is hard to believe. My first introduction to Rush was a show of hands CD, and my first Rush gig was the Roll the Bones tour. I've been a huge fan since then, going to every tour when they came to the UK. It was always a big event on my calendar. But when Neil passed, I felt so sad and low. But it was your podcasts with your stories of all things Rush, the albums and the lyrics and the wonderful guests you had on your show that helped me. And now when I look back on our journey over the past year, it's been a huge part of the healing process. And I did not feel stupid for feeling the way I did about a man I never knew or met. But now I know I was not alone in feeling this way. So a big thank you and looking forward to further episodes and stories and great guests coming up in the future. So if you or Steve are ever in Lancashire in the UK and can fit me in on your now full lunch, <laughs> another lunch, it's another lunch offer. Wow. You could <laughs> so you can fit me in on your now full lunch diary, then lunch is on me and a beer or two. Now I'm off to visit the Rush backstage store to buy some more Rush merch. I'm there every month and they're still putting out fantastic merchandise. Thanks again. Wow, that's so nice. Thanks so much yeah. for that. And uh, I'll, I'll fly to the UK to get lunch. Who's paying for the plane tickets? You? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can, uh, I don't know, crowdsource. People can. <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I'm not asking anybody for money. Lunch I'll ask them for, but I'm not going to ask for money. Either am I. So, Jared, he mentioned great guests that we've had on the podcast, and we've got another great one today. That we do. We do. He produced the short film Growth Rings with Neil Peart, also directed the film Masters of Resonance, which featured Neil Peart, and he's the founder of Edge Factor, Jeremy Bout. Welcome to the Rush Fancast. Hey, good to be here, guys. Thanks uh, for inviting me and looking forward to uh, yeah chatting about this project. So, Jeremy, before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your company, Edge Factor? What is it that you guys do and how long have you been in existence? Edge Factor is kind of kind of comes. So I'm I'm the the founder. I'm the owner. But it's it's really kind of a personal connection. Uh, big fan of you know storytelling. If you know anything about Edge Factor, we love the art of learning through the lens. And documentary really is the medium. But we we really started out of the idea that we wanted to change people's perceptions about. For me specifically, manufacturing. 
uh, I was that 18 year old kid that didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I fell into a summer job in manufacturing and it was largely because I, I needed something to do, trying to figure out where I was going in life. And it really was this gateway though, to this world of, you know, people that make things, first of all, just a crazy thing. When you have an idea that you have in your head, you connect it with your hands and you go make something. And manufacturing is, is such a cool sort of art form in some ways, because, you know, a lot of times it has a bad rap of, of factory work, et cetera, but sometimes behind closed doors, there's just unbelievably cool things going on. And so 18 years old, got into manufacturing, looked around, realized there was an awful lot of people with gray hair, started to call <laughs> it the silver tsunami of, you know, people retiring out of an industry that needed more blood coming into it, um, needed young people that were interested in, in taking the new digital technologies, emerging it with older technologies. And so, you know, about 10 years into my manufacturing career out of Western New York, I'm a Canadian, but uh, worked in the U.S. And I uh, really loved the, my, watching my coworkers, you know, problem solving, et cetera, et cetera. Saw great opportunity for young people, wanted to tell the story, but wanted to do it through the lens because I really know that stories are a medium that we can all resonate with. Parents, grandparents, students, really all of us can unite around a well-told story. So that was the, the premise for Edge Factor. Um, but over the years, we've expanded over and over into so many different sectors and We've done major long length feature films like Masters of Resonance. We've done a lot shorter, smaller. Uh, the whole idea is to take people on this journey of inspiration, move them to exploration, talk about preparing and then ultimately connecting students with opportunities uh, and preferably within their own community because really the, the place where you live is the best place, wherever that is. And you can really tell from the movie Masters of Resonance that you're interested in the manufacturing process. It takes some skill to make manufacturing as interesting as you made it in Masters of Resonance. So how did that come about that you like chose drum manufacturing of all things? Well, you know, that's kind of the interesting thing, right? When uh, I talk with students a lot about, you know, how do you, because kids will come up and say, man, how do I make a movie like you made? And it's like, well, do you have a, a phone? They're like, yeah. I'm like, uh, you got a napkin? They're like, I do. I'm like, great write a story, use your phone to make the film, and then you'll get more and more opportunity. So you don't walk into a place like DW and you don't get, just get the chance to make a film like that. DW instantly looked at my demo reel and they said, whoa, we'd really like to be seen with you guys. Clearly you've worked with some really big brands. Well, we didn't start there. We started with doing our absolute best with the first thing that we touched. Um, and our stories really uh, have, have been the gateway to relationships. And so DW looked at our demo reel while I was working on a film uh, that involved Taylor Guitars. And Taylor Guitars, uh, if you've ever heard of the NAM show, uh, mm -hmm. I was filming at NAM. Uh, I went over to the DW booth, met with Scott Donnell there. Uh, Scott was like really warm, like crazy warm. I will say he was, he was uh, like, man, dude, uh, why don't you, you're in, you're in LA right now. I know you're from Canada. If you're in town and you guys have the time, why don't you go to our factory? None of us are there, but I'll call one of my people to give you a tour. And I went and did a tour of, uh, the factory while I was in, in LA and just was like, this is, this is just epic. Like I I've got to do something here. And, uh, little did I realize that, uh, it would allow me to work with some just unbelievable talent. And really we had to cut so many just phenomenal drummers out of the 
film because we just couldn't fit everybody that we filmed within. It was like probably the worst business decision I've ever made from a, a dollars and cents perspective, but gosh, darn it. Did we ever hang out with some really interesting characters? <laughs> now in the film, it's clear that this is the first time you've met Neil Peart. Tell us about that first meeting and interview you did with Neil. Yeah. You know, so it, it, if you've watched the film, it kind of comes out, you know, we messed a little bit sometimes with timelines, but the, the reality of it was I, I knew that Neil was was in the building next door partway through our film shoot. And they kind of were like, you could tell they wanted to tell me that they had something cool for us, but they didn't quite have the commitment. And so, you know, when when we were filming scenes for the film, the manufacturing scenes, they kind of sprung it on us. Hey, we weren't allowed to film on that side of the building because the studio's booked, but actually the guy that's in there, we think we can get an interview. Do you, would you? So we kind of explain that in the, in the film, how that went down. And, you know, obviously everybody's heard of rush. And then as soon as you start working on a drumming project, everybody starts to reference Neil. He's that uh, respected pretty much any drummer that we talked to at some point in our interview mentioned Neil Peart. So obviously it was, it was a, it was a privilege. And, and I, I kind of wrestled with that. You know, I even mentioned that in the film where it's like, what do you ask a guy like this? Like, I mean, everybody's human. If you've, if you've worked in the industry, as long as I have, I've spent a lot of time with a lot of different famous people. Um, and as soon as you get behind the veil with anybody famous, you realize, yeah, that's really, there's nothing different. And so I knew that going into that with Neil, I was just going to spend time with another guy, but here was a guy that so many people respected and he was an unbelievably private man. Like he's been interviewed by the best of the best. He's been produced by the best of the best. He's played in front of literally millions of people. He's got an unbelievably rabid fan base. What do you say to a guy like that? And, and then I just decided, you know, stick to the script, talk about the project. And that was clearly the right choice. Yeah, you definitely got on his. Uh, you could tell in the movie. There's a there's a, a scene in the movie where you ask him. I don't know if it was in in your script to ask him, but you ask him about the wood that was used to make his drum kit. It was a fifteen hundred year old oak tree that was dredged from a bog in <laughs> in Romania. Yeah. And you asked him about if he ever thought about where the world was fifteen hundred years ago, and he just takes off from there. Yeah. And that was a bit, I, I'm not going to lie. That was kind of calculated on my part. Um, <laughs> it was, it was that thing where, you know, leading up to that point in the conversation, it was very clear. I was there because of John Good. John Good, if you uh, watch the film, I hope you fell in love with them because he's a guy that you want to spend time with. He's just a true gentleman, but he's an incredible artist. He, you know, some people, most people, anybody who's met him, I will tell you pretty much loves him. But if, if you, don't know John Good and you think the DW brand is overrated because I've, I've seen, you know, online, everybody has an opinion. Um, some people will say that, but I don't believe anybody would actually believe that after spending time with him because he's truly an artist. So John Good just lives and breathes and loves making drums out of anything and everything. And I think, you know, I was in that moment with Neil because he appreciates that kind of person. Mm -hmm. Neil really, really did. Lo he loves somebody that, that is as passionate about their craft. He really respects that. 
If you've watched other videos with Neil and John together, you can see that there was a special bond. I understood I was riding John's coattail coming into that meeting. I, I wanted though to kind of separate myself a little bit and, and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm a storyteller and I too love the art of making something and doing it well. And I'm working on a project that I believe you, Neil, would really enjoy. So I, I thought about how was I going to craft that? And for me, I knew that that he is a thinker. He's he's an author. He's a, He was a writer, right? So I went, I went that direction, hoping to draw him out a little bit. And you can, you can see his body language. I was simply another person from the press until that question. <laughs> and then he, he, he latched on. I'm like, and that's the Neil that I'm looking for right mm-hmm. at this moment mm-hmm. as a storyteller. That's what I was hoping, hoping I could evoke from him. And the fact that you weren't a Rush fan probably helped as well, right? Well, yeah. Did you have to bring that up? Just trying to embarrass <laughs> At the time me. You weren't a Rush <laughs> fan, right? Yes. Maybe you should ask that question again, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, look, I, I will admit. Uh, look, everybody's heard of Rush, uh, or certainly if you're into music, certainly if you're a an artist yourself. Um, uh, this band has been around a long time, and they've made a lot of, uh, you know, I would say they've stood the test of time musically. So I was aware of the band. Uh, I, I went into this interviewing many different drummers, then immediately was like, whoa, Neil's on my radar. Then when you get the chance to actually interview this guy, you realize that it's substantial, but I wasn't a fanboy, And so I think it would have actually been damaging for me if I was like tripping over myself, wanting to touch this guy's hand because yeah. he's, <laughs> you know, from Rush. Yeah. Um, so I think that that did play into it, to be honest, because I was really there wanting the true sort of perspective because I could respect him on many different levels and it wasn't a barrier for me. And I think he would have felt that he's a very, he was, you know, an incredibly astute man. So Jeremy, how did the film masters of resonance evolve into you working with Neil on the short film growth rings, which recently came out? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I asked Scott if he thought Neil would be up for doing a little bit of writing, what was going to be the intro to the film. That was the initial thought. So I actually went back to LA working on a few other things. Uh, and while I was there, I, I did a, f- a few more interviews with a few other drummers, really great, great guys. Um, and uh, I had written a little bit of a, uh, a sort of a bulleted list of things that I was thinking about, you know, the way that music affects us and changes us. Uh, it, it can almost burn itself into that moment in time. And so I had, I, I pre-recorded actually myself addressing Neil. I, I actually recorded a video of me pitching this idea to Neil and I sent it first to DW and said, if you guys think this is worthwhile, would you pass this on to Neil? And, uh, and they did. And Neil said, yeah, really, you know, think this is, this is something I would like to participate in. So, so then he took it and he wrote, uh, some stuff and it came back to me and then I made some changes and then I ended up writing augmented stuff that we kind of injected into this. And then we decided to meet in the studio. So he and I then, yeah, met in LA, uh, went to the studio together and, uh, I was curious I went, I went into that. I'd already obviously, I'd already filmed with them. So it wasn't like the first time we were meeting, but I was 
very, very interested to see what that session was going to be like, because, you know, here's a guy that has been, well, look, he's been in and out of studios for, for decades and decades leading up to that. He's had the best uh, of the best working with him. And here's little old me, uh, you know, having a shot at working on him in a different capacity as a voiceover talent. I was going to direct him and ask him to do certain things. How was he going to react? And the truth was he was incredibly humble. Um, there was no real uh, ego there. There was no sort of preconceived. He was willing to throw out his ideas, but also take some direction on ideas that I had. Uh, I was curious if he'd be willing to record that the, I had tacked on the, the end of the, the and you, you may pick up on this. Nobody's pointed it out yet, but if you listen for it, I think you'll notice there is a slight tonal change at the end of Growth Rings. And that was a portion that I had written. And I was not 100% sure how he was going to feel about what I had added to it. And I got a little bit of pushback from a couple of other people who, who were involved in the project. They were like, you know, that's got an interesting flavor. But he recorded it. We made some tweaks together uh, in actually on the fly. And, uh, and then what, what, what came out of it, looking back, you know, not, not knowing when we recorded that he was actually going to pass away before this thing would actually hit. Uh, it, it was uh, fairly poetic, I would say, and, and quite significant considering that COVID also was happening simultaneously to all of this. And it was, um, yeah, it was, it was, I think it was a pretty powerful ending as well. Yeah, I mean, speaking as a Rush fan and, and hearing from other Rush fans, having that video come out, and hearing Neil again, it, it, was, it was very, very emotional for uh, a lot of us. Especially since, you know, the, the main metaphor of, you know, the growth rings and how you can read the life of the tree and how that, how that translates into how you remember your own life. Mm -hmm. And that, that was just, it couldn't have come at a, at a better time for us Rush fans. Yeah, it took us a while to kind of get the clearances, like as you can well imagine, right? Like this just this is this is not a band that is uh it's easily accessible, like from a record label perspective. Like when you get into this level of artistry, there's record labels and there's you know, especially when when there's an estate when somebody passes away, there's you know, existing band members that, you know, don't always call their own, the shots on their own music and um, but we were able to get all, all of the parties when they understood that I had absolutely no financial stake in this. Um, this was all done. I paid for it. My intention was completely pure. We, we put it out there. Nobody made a penny off of this. This truly was just a gift back to the world. And so for me, I think that was, that was probably felt in you know with with neil's widow giving us the approvals the, the record label saying yeah go for it we'll even let you guys use uh some of the the musical content in here we had um you know getty uh i think signed off on it as well uh, we had pretty much everybody uh looking at this saying yeah let's get this out there because um it, it was a message i think that was a bit of a balm for many people mm -hmm. and can you tell us how that whole metaphor came about i mean you said it was originally supposed to be the intro to the film mm -hmm. but 
it did it expand beyond that afterwards? You know what it was? I had three different versions of the film, and I'll be honest with you, I pretty much blame you guys for that. <laughs> Us specifically? Not you specifically, <laughs> but you contributed to my anxiety. Uh, the, the, the Rush fan base is quite, quite a machine, <laughs> let me tell you. And uh, I went to a Toronto event for, for their, their the, I think, the, the, one of the last films that came out uh, around uh, the, the, the R40 tour. And Larissa, uh, the, the vice president of the company, and uh, she's a, an associate producer on the film as well, Larissa and I were just, you know, kind of taking it in and listening to just how much this band meant to so many people. And it was almost hard to relate to like the scope of the intensity of this group of people that we were listening to. And, uh, and so we had wrestled with various aspects of this film and we had already at that point filmed with Neil and we had already kind of captured this, but we just felt that the, the flow of the film, it needed to, that needed to be the end of the film. You needed to hear from Neil and see the R40 at the end of the film. You couldn't bring that whole component at the beginning of the film. It would really reduce sort of the buildup that we wanted in the story. And so I ended up with three different versions of the film and there was one of the, the early, and in some ways it was heartbreaking to do this because I had so many killer interviews with so many really neat musicians um, talking about the effects of music and how music just can be such a big part of your life and how, you know, as, as Neil talks about that phantom, you know, melody, you know, piercing into a moment of your life and sort of attaching itself there and how you could hear that you know, track and, and it brings you back. And so there was a lot of interviews that ended up getting cut around that concept because we felt that the making of the drums was the story, not the concept of growth rings, even though I desperately wanted those two things to come together because they kind of do separating them out was, was probably wise. Um, but uh, that's the, the other thing about documentary filmmaking, you're pretty much never done. You, you kind of eventually give up. <laughs> because you could edit and edit and edit forever. Um, and, and sometimes I would say that documentary filmmaking is, is a far harder art form than, than actually uh, live action, largely because of that, because you, the story can sort of be crafted and pushed and moved in so many different ways. And that's what happened with uh, Masters of Resonance and ultimately spawning then Growth Rings as a separate production. I think um, Da Vinci's uh, attributed to da Vinci, he said that art is never finished, only abandoned. Yes. I, I can relate to that. Um, woulda, coulda, shoulda, um, like all those things. It's not really regret. It's just, it's a fascinating thing when you see something in your head and you live and breathe it. It took me years to make this film. And ultimately, again, it was, it was very much like that. You, you kind of, I don't want to say give up on it because it was, there was no sense of that. Um, and I will say it was incredibly gratifying to, to get it out there and to see the responses to it. Um, we did a, a, an event uh, at the Grammy Museum in LA, and it was just really fun to, to just see people's reactions. I, I, the two key takeaways for me with the film are this. I needed the fan base for Rush to feel happy that Neil was honored and that the drum kit was honored in that they walked away learning something because I know that that was important. But I, what I really didn't want to have happen here was that I leveraged Neil in a way that was not fair um, 
and that I didn't honor John Good because he's to me he was like the the guy like <laughs> like for me as much as I enjoyed meeting Neil and working with Neil on that project totally for me it was like I I'll spend time with John Good all day long man like he's just the best how crazy is it that the CEO of a company like that will actually go out into the forest and chop down the trees that are used to make the drums for his company. I mean, that's amazing to me. Yeah. And you know, I think that's the, uh, that's the cool thing about that brand. Like it's, it's authentic. It's not even, it's not put on, like it's legit, man. Like John Good would, would pretty much make a drum out of anything if he could. <laughs> I've been trying to talk him to come up here because I live close to Niagara Falls. I'm like, John, like, let's, let's like drag the river and pull some trees out of the Niagara River. That's pretty cool, isn't it? It's like, that's crazy. I don't know. Maybe some barrels. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I got a lot of barrels around here. We make a lot of wine around here. Maybe I could entice them that way. The thing I don't understand is how a tree stays so preserved underwater like that for 1500 years. How does that work? Well, I mean, in that case, it was largely really the, the silt. So the silt uh, going into and the mud really encasing it. So it, 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 I mean, it didn't petrify it, but it certainly messed with the, uh, you know, the organic materials for sure. Crazy. Really crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing I love about that, that kit, actually the, the, the sequence in the film when they're making Neil's kit, uh, they only got enough wood <laughs> to make the kit. <laughs> you know, it's almost like if one wrong cut and they would be missing a couple of drums. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the process? I mean, you go into it in the, in the Masters of Residence, but the process was so interesting when it came to yeah. that particular log. Yeah. And, 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 you know, what the film didn't really cover. Well, I think we did mention there's a certain smell about that wood uh, because they had some left there where you could actually like smell like it was, it was a bog oak, you know, like this thing came <laughs> from a bog. But I think the thing that really is uh, to me was just outstanding about that kit was the scope of the handwork that they did as well. Like, yeah. it, it, you know, it's like a Swiss watch, you know, just, beautifully put together same thing with that kit looking at all the little inlays that went in there that wasn't just printed that wasn't just nicely designed and even though you know they they can do it that way um in this case truly it was was built out of of all these different materials coming together and that just phenomenal tapestry but you know when i look at the process of of what they did there i think it was as much neil the expression that Neil had as well as John, right? Because it took the two of them to kind of push it to that extent, you know, and Louis, of course, uh, the artist as well had a huge hand in that. So I just think, I thought it was a really cool, it was a really cool thing because even if it didn't sound different, which I think it did. And, and Neil of all people would know if it did for me, just watching the way the whole team came together around that and Neil able to sort of direct a group of people to build something that that was so well thought out. I just love that. that I mean, but you hear that in me talk about manufacturing as well, right? Like I love it watching something that's been really well designed that clearly people put a lot of heart and soul into. And yeah, you just, you'd love to see people take that much pride in everything they do. 
Do you think the fact that they had a deadline, what was it, a couple of months to get this drum kit finished, did that make it better, do you think, that they had to do it so quickly? You know, I can't speak for them. I can only speak for me in that regard. I tend to do my best work under pressure. And, you know, I think, I think they, did, they did just do such a phenomenal job. The, the one thing that, that kind of I was intrigued by too was, I don't, I don't know if we ever touched on this fully in the film, but like some of the prototyping that they did with like 3D printing and they brought in some other advanced technologies you saw in there, like a, a laser cutter. So, you know, in some ways the, the, it's a 1500 year old tree, sure. But it was also really uh, the uh, latest and greatest technology that allowed that to sort of come out the way it did. So. Um, it really was, from my perspective, just a, a wonderful, wonderful piece of, of art. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Um, I wanted to circle back to, uh, to the Growth Rings video because, like I said before, you know, it was very emotional for uh, uh, most of us Rush fans. Can you tell us a little bit about how you crafted the idea, of the metaphor of the growth rings and all of these different stages that people go through and how you can kind of read almost history by history's mm. own kind of expansion and growth every year. Well, that it was a combination of what I wrote Neil to begin with the idea behind it, but he took it further. So where I kind of threw out there that, that, that music becomes part of our identity, he took beyond and said, um, you know, like a tree and the growth rings on a tree and you can see the good years and the bad years yeah. in those growth rings. That was a new thought. I remember reading that the first time and just going, oh, wow, that, that took it even further than I was thinking, you know? Um, and I love that because clearly he took the time to really think it through. And again, I think that was partly also why it was so emotional, right? Because for so many Rush fans, they're looking back at their life and they're thinking about this tune, this track, this lyric. It's, it's part of their growth rings. And also it's part of Neil's growth rings really too, because Neil wrote all sure the is. lyrics to Rush's songs. And in many ways, it's like uh, Rush's catalog was Neil's growth rings, right? Mm hmm yeah and that you know and that's the because because as uh, you know he's he's been on the public stage for for so long and so the many heartbreaking moments in his life were there for all to see and and so no doubt i mean there's no doubt that that he was affected uh by all of these things and that affected his writing so I was I was sad not to see him be able to go on and do more voiceover work. I know he was done with the drumming and and I, I suppose like other major bands, maybe there was another tour in him. I don't think so, but because uh, I, I know he he seems to be a uh, that he was very much a man of his word, but he really enjoyed doing the voiceover. And wasn't it just magnificent? Uh, his his voice. Yeah, absolutely. He could have done nature documentaries. Oh anything. yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, he, it was kind of funny because he could pretty much say anything, and you just had to stop and listen because it was magnificent. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it was pretty. It was pretty epic. Yeah. Oh, it really was fantastic. It just makes you think how hard it must have been for Neil to listen to a lot of Rush's songs because, as he talks about in the video. Music is so powerful and brings back so many memories, both good and bad. 
And an album like Vapor Trails, which was written after Neil's tragedies, it must have been tough for him to go back and listen to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to spend time with artists, uh, you know, like in, in the film, uh, you, you saw me spend time with a guy named Duncan Phillips. And Duncan and I talked a little bit about that, where, you know, where where do you as an artist find inspiration and where do you uh, listen to other tracks. And I think it, it, it can be sometimes weirdly you write a song and it means so much to you in that moment. But I, I wonder if possibly after performing it so many times, it doesn't have quite the same. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost, it's almost like it, 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 you maybe become a little bit inoculated against the power of what mm-hmm. you wrote in that moment a little bit, you know, because you're, you're just, it's just so familiar. Uh, and then I think there's going to be times too, where it does suddenly come back to you and it's raw. So um, it, 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 yeah, no doubt. I mean, look, he, he really did face some really difficult things. There's no doubt. And uh, as an artist, I think everything you put out there is a little piece of you. Yeah. You hit upon in the movie or the little short about how someone's legacy can live on. And, and you use a tree as a, as one of the examples, how it grows and it provides the shade that the, that the forest needs. And then when it falls down, it becomes part of the forest again, but also opens up some canopy space for other trees to grow. Mm-hmm. And that's really like the, the legacy of Rush or any, any huge influential band is that at some point they have to step away, but now comes the new growth, new bands yeah. who, were, who were very influenced by them. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, that's the heart of, and I don't know, I can't say this to be sure. Although Neil is very, was very selective about, you know, who he would allow to work with him. I think he appreciated that about what we were trying to accomplish was to inspire young people to go do something, anything maybe, but don't be stagnant and push yourself and become the, the best that you can be. And, and that's the, really a consistent theme pretty much in everything I do and everything I touch uh, with edge factor. And, and certainly that is Neil's legacy. I mean, he was not just gifted at drumming. He worked at staying at the top. And I think that's a really important message that I hope led through the film. Like you've got to work at whatever it is that you do you know the the drummer for black sabbath mentioned that you know maybe maybe it's not drums for you maybe it's you know maybe it's fixing something or you're a pipe fitter or you're in the trades like i don't care what you do do it well yeah and people will notice so we saw another video jeremy you did directed at the class of 2020 connecting neil's words with what we're going through now in the pandemic and i think it's something that, that everybody can learn from. Can you talk a little bit about that? You mentioned a master is a good time manager and mm-hmm. that you learned so much from watching Neil prepare for the R40 tour. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, it, it struck me that there we were working on a film on one part of, of the factory. And I knew that Neil was on the other side and it'd be like, well, is he still practicing like the guy's been drumming for 40 years like <laughs> why does he have to just keep practicing and practicing and practicing and 
And he did that because he, he did not take it lightly that people paid a lot of money to come hear him play. He wanted to be the best at what it, it was that, that they were going to do on stage. And I don't know. I really respect that. I think it's really easy. I've, I, you know, I've, I've been given a lot of opportunity in front of people to speak at different events. And sometimes it's tempting, quite frankly, to fall back on what I've prepared in the past and, Oh, I'm, I'm good. I don't need to, I don't need to be prepared. And, and so I, I really appreciated that he continued even in what, whatever we knew was probably his final tour that he continued to practice that hard because he wanted to be the best at, at, within his giftings. And so I just really felt that that was an important message for, for other people to consider. Are you doing whatever it is that you're doing to the best of your abilities? Because at the end of the day, who's really going to be robbed? You. Because you'll never become the best within whatever you've been given. As you said in the video, find your silver lining, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the silver lining in so there's been a lot for me. I, I think with COVID um, there's been a lot of things that I hate, uh, but, but there has been a lot of silver linings. I think there's clarity with uh, not, not being as busy as I maybe was at one point um, spending more time with my family, which has been just wonderful. Um, but I think that gift of, of time and yeah. So that, that the silver lining, I think you, you do want to even just pause and look for it. Cause I get tired also of people complaining, <laughs> you know, don't complain, find something to be thankful for. Cause there is a lot that you could be thankful for. Yeah. I, I hope that if there's anything good that comes out of this experience, we're all going through, it, it's something like that because this has the, the, the possibility to change the way everyone sees daily life, you know, and I think it could change the way people work and how they relate to each other. And it could have lasting effects for generations, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the, you know, in the middle of it all, there is so much to be thankful for. And, uh, and I think you have to pause and just remember that. And uh, don't let your, looking back at this time, your growth rings that are happening right now, that, that you look at them as, as only bitter and negative. You, you will, I hope, regret that. I think for some people, they got to just pause and yeah, just look, how am I reacting? Uh, how am I treating other people right now? So Jeremy, do you think Neil was able to look back on his life? Like he said in the film and, and see that he earned his seat among the masters of resonance, as you call them. Do you think Neil was able to look back and feel that way about himself? Hmm. Do, do you know what's interesting? If I'm brutally honest, I, I don't, I don't think I want to answer that because he, he, I think he was very introspective and he probably at one level, yes, could do that. And maybe on the other hand, he also just, he was compelled to seek more and to continually, you know, reach for, for new heights. And uh, I think that's a, a blessing and a curse maybe for all of us that, you know, you don't want to fall back and say, Oh, I've arrived. Like a, a true artist never arrives. You know, we, we heard that in there as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, actually, I, I actually don't think that probably he did. I think he, he might've felt there was more and there was more that he wanted to accomplish. I, I think that's probably going to be true for, for most people like him. 
I mean, Neil was such a brilliant man. Is there anything else that you learned from Neil that you take with you in your work now? Something that you, you maybe didn't think of then? We touched on it earlier, but I, I would just uh, reiterate this. There was a humility in him. Not only was he private, not only was he well-spoken, had a great voice, obviously incredible drummer, but he was humble. And I think that's something that I really took away from him as well was just that, yeah, leave room for other people. Celebrate someone else's you know, gifting or attempt. And I felt that, that he did that for me in many ways. He, he probably could have given someone else the gift of, of, of writing a portion and then going into the studio to record it. But he allowed me to do it. And, uh, and he did it incredibly uh, in, in a gentle, kind, humble way. And he let me be a professional. And so I, I don't know, I think his humility continues to speak to me as well. So we usually start out our interviews, Jeremy, by asking the Rush origin story. So we, we know how you discovered Rush. So now, are you a Rush fan? Yeah. Yeah, I would say I'm, I'm a fan on, on a few levels. I have a, a huge respect for Rush um, because I know that they are just incredible musicians on so many levels. So, so I'll just give you a, a few things. So one, I love the fact that they play their music. They're not playing to tracks. They're actually, when they're live, like they are truly live playing their music. When Rush uh, comes out, they've, they've thought through the artistry and the graphics. Like They were pioneers in many ways with some of these productions. So I really enjoy some of the art. And I think they have a depth to their music, which is why they have stood the test of time, just, just from the, the technical side of things um, and then the authenticity that they bring uh, in, in just the, the way in which they play their music. I think they really have stood the test of time. So are they on my daily playlist? No, but do I enjoy firing them up? Absolutely. Um, really very much uh, have grown to appreciate these guys in, in so many different ways. So what are you working on now with Edge Factor? Any other collaborations with DW Drums coming up? Anything like that? So we are, we, we talked a little bit, uh, we're waiting for the pandemic to uh, allow us to f- travel a little bit more freely. But we're talking about doing some collaborative uh, STEM student projects with them, and uh, so we've we've kicked around uh, some some doing some inspirational stuff in LA, working with the uh, media and entertainment for the, the state. So I'll be in some studios in uh, June this year, uh, working with some some musicians, specifically looking at career pathways for students in the music and entertainment industry. So. DW, uh, yeah, we, we hope when COVID breaks that we can actually uh, get, get students involved with some of this. The one thing that, uh, that is always you know, close at mind for me is whenever I'm in an airplane and I'm looking down, I kind of texted John a while ago and I said, you know, it's interesting. You kind of ruined me because now I fly over. And I'm like looking at tree <laughs> types and I'm like, gee, look at all those drum kits down there. <laughs> Well, we found our silver lining today, Jeremy, that's for sure. And that's talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us on the Rush Fancast today. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So, Jerry, I wasn't kidding. I've wanted to have Jeremy on the show for a long time, and we finally were able to contact him. And what a great guest. 
Yeah, absolutely. I remember you wanted to do it as soon as Growth Rings came out. Yeah, we got to have that guy on. And then <laughs> yeah. and then I couldn't figure out how to get a hold of him, but we were able to do it. Yeah, it was great. What a fantastic guest he was, man. Well, first of all, I have to say, if you haven't watched Masters of Resonance, you've got to watch this. It's about yeah. an hour and five minutes, something like that. Yeah. All about the making of DW drums. Yeah. And Neil makes an appearance toward the end, about 10 minutes or so. Neil is in the movie, I think. But the documentary is fantastic. I mean, you, you're like me, Jerry. You'll watch a documentary about anything, right? I, I, I love documentaries. I'll watch, I will watch a documentary, but I, I used to watch, I still watch it a lot, uh, how it's made the weirdest show in the world, right? Yeah. Well, this is similar to that, but yeah, 10 times better, <laughs> 10 times, a hundred times better. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't kidding when I said to him, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a gift to make manufacturing interesting because it was a very, very interesting movie about making drums i had no idea i mean I, I had always heard like these drums are three ply and this drum is five ply but i had no idea about grain orientation and picking out wood it was it was a really good movie yeah fantastic and and growth rings only seven minutes but jeremy packs so much into that seven minutes it feels like it's an hour-long movie but it was only seven minutes long yeah, there's a lot to digest in there. And just fantastic. And, and he wasn't kidding about Neil's voiceover. He could have done nature documentaries, anything he wanted to. Yeah, that would have been great. Would have been fantastic. I'm sure he would have done it. Oh, yeah. If he had done, you know, I'm, this is a little off topic, but talking about documentaries, one of my favorite subjects for documentaries are these birds called bower birds. Have you ever heard of bower birds? Bower birds? No. Yeah, they make these elaborate structures to try and uh, attract females you have got to find you've got to find a video about power birds they're mo they're the most incredible birds and i could just picture neil, for some reason neil <laughs> would dig that so hard because these birds they the things that they build it's incredible i'll have to check that out oh so steve one one more thing do you remember i don't know it was a couple of weeks ago last week i have no idea when it was we talked about the Instagram page at Rush fans doing like a March Madness type of deal for Rush songs. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You did tell me about that. I just want to see if you, you're, you're a basketball fan-ish, right? Uh, not really, especially not college basketball, but I do, oh, okay. I do know how the NCAA tournament works. Yeah, I didn't. But anyway, that's a whole, whole other story. I'm going to give you the final four, right? That's a big thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Final four. From the 70s the song that came out was a farewell to Kings. So this is deep cuts, right? Yeah. These are deep cuts. One from the seventies, one from the eighties, one from the nineties and one from the aughts and above a farewell to Kings. That's a good one. Farewell to Kings. And then we have the eighties marathon. Okay. Another good one. Then we have nineties driven. Okay. And for the aughts and above the garden. Oh, great one. So we have A Farewell to Kings versus Driven. What do you think won? A Farewell to Kings. You're right. Ooh, okay. Now we have now we have Marathon Against the Garden. Marathon Against the Garden. The Garden. No. Marathon. Really? Yeah. Can you believe that? I love Marathon, but I'm surprised at that. I was very surprised too. So the final two are Farewell to Kings and Marathon. So who do you think won? Well, if Marathon beat the Garden, 
it probably beat a farewell to Kings too. Is that your final answer? Marathon. Yes. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Well, I was wrong about it beating the garden. So I was wrong. Well, okay. But this time you were right. If I filled out the bracket, <laughs> I would have blown up the bracket. Could you believe that? That's, that's incredible to me. Marathon. It's a great song. I, I get it. I get it. But the garden that's up there for me. It told me, yeah, me too. I was very surprised. I would have picked the garden to go all the way. But on the other hand, I don't consider the garden a deep track either. Well, oh boy, man, you just opened up a can of worms. <laughs> we got to get Ryan on the horn. Ryan, what are you doing here? The garden a deep track? There was a whole thing about what constitutes a deep track, and it's getting flack from all sides. But you know what? There was a reason. Uh, you have to go to at Rush fans and, and oh, look it up. Oh, I see. Okay. It's a tease. I got to go to Rush fans and check it out. Yep. And you can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are at TheRushCast. Email Jerry your thoughts on Bauer Birds <laughs> and our conversation with Jeremy Bout, of course, at TheRushCast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro was done by Lex. And Jerry, I hope you have a quote for us to wrap this up nicely. I do. I mean, since we were talking about the creative process, how about this? Okay. From the point of conception to the moment of truth, at the point of surrender to the burden of proof, from the point of ignition to the final drive, the point of the journey is not to arrive. Anything can happen. Yep. Take it easy, Jer. All right, see you.